Mac Power Users, Episode 204, Presentations, a Mac Sparky Field Guide. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. It's finally time, David. Yes, it is. Amen. Launched. <laughs> Actually, we, this book is th- this podcast is coming out on Sunday, and the book is is a release for sale on Monday at at midnight or thereabouts. So, yeah. if you're listening early, just at another couple hours, just another few hours, and you should be anxiously awaited. But they can pre order. You're doing you're doing early pre orders this time. That's a yes. Thing. Yeah. yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff different this time. We'll have to talk about that. We are going to talk all about that. But the topic, as you announced a couple of weeks ago, of the latest Max Barkey Field Guide is presentations. And I've known about this for a while. I've known the topic for a while. But just this past weekend, uh, I was going away for a trip uh, to a, a desert island with no internet access. So you graciously granted me a, a preview copy that I could read, but I, I had to swear an oath that I would not share this with anybody so that I could prepare it's for the scary show. When you put your, your beloved on Dropbox and send a link out, that's scary. Yeah. And you said something like, do not tweet this link. And I was confused for a minute about whether that meant do tweet <laughs> this link. <laughs> but I guess I, I figured I better not. I wrote a book on presentations, Katie Floyd. You did. Congratulations, David Sparks. That's an amazing. It's you know these these field guides always astonish me, and the fact that you're you're doing two a year some years, um, and I know you're. We spoke, and and I said, well, are you going to take at least a week or so off before you start the next one? And I think you said I've kind of already started the next one. I have, but that's a whole other story. The one I'm the next one I'm doing is kind of timely, and I'd really like to hit a certain date, but we'll talk about that another day. Um, <laughs> but. It, presentations have always bugged me and it's, this is a book that I've had in my system for a long time and I, I wanted to treat it right. And I actually spent, uh, I started work on this book in November of 2013 and I finished it like a week ago. I submitted it to Apple about a week ago. So it, that was a, a, a pretty big project getting this book done. It, it ended up over 400 pages and 44 screencasts and, um, you know, usually I try to keep the screencast about an hour and a half, but this time I got them to two hours. So, but I just couldn't cut anymore. I wanted to get all this good stuff in there. Yeah. Now, size wise, how does that compare to some of your, your other books? This one, it's got a, it's got fewer chapters than some of your other books, but as I started getting into them, it's got some really meaty chapters. Yeah. Like the, the keynote chapter is a monster. It's like a book long chapter. It is. I was like, Oh look, it's only got like four or five chapters. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, this keynote chapter, I'm never going to get through. Yeah. But in in a good way, (laughs) it was in a good way. I'm not sure that didn't sound that good to me, Katie. Uh, But either way it, you know, it really, um, I wanted to cover like everything else. I kind of look at my books as brain dumps and I want to, um, my friend Jim's the one who gave me that, by the way, and he listens to the show, so I'm sure that'll make him happy. But I, I want to just kind of unload my whole thought on presentation. So like email, this book is part religion and part practical. You know, there's a lot of stuff in here about what makes a good presentation. And there's even stuff about what you do on presentation day. But then there's also a lot of the technical stuff about how to create interesting slides and use all the the great tools and combinations of tools to make something in keynote. 
There's there's even a slide or a series of slides and that will tell you in great detail how to make a lightsaber. Yeah, wasn't that fun? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to make a complex object and most of the stuff I make is, you know, related to clients and I can't put it in a book and just stick it out there. And I got thinking, well, what is a complex object that would be fun to make? And I made this really complex uh, uh, lightsaber with just graphical elements from inside Keynote. I wanted to see how far I could take it. And it actually came out pretty complex. Although Looks you, good, though. You didn't start any lightsaber duels. I was very disappointed. I kept expecting yeah. another lightsaber to show up and then them to start dueling. Maybe yeah. maybe in, in version two of the book, you can do that for me. Yeah. Second edition. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. Why presentations? Why was this a topic that you've been itching to write about? Paperless, clearly you, you are the paperless guru. Email made a lot of sense because you've you've been harping on email for a long time and trying to help people with email. Uh, Markdown, certainly everybody knows you as Markdown. But why the presentations book? Well, it's, a, it's another thing that I feel like I have a voice or a story to tell. And a story that needs to be told because I just go to so many presentations that are so terrible, even in the, in the day job dealing with other lawyers and, you know, lawyers are paid to, you know, they're fancy salesmen in a lot of ways. You have to get a point across and convince somebody of something. And there's just so many bad presentations I see. And you go to meetings and you go to, you know, some of the local stuff, you know, charity stuff I work on, I see presentations. And I go to the school and I see presentations. And they're just all so terrible. And it's not that difficult to make a good presentation, but I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding by a lot of people about what a presentation is supposed to do and what makes a good presentation. And if you just spend a little bit of time kind of boning up on this stuff, you can dramatically increase the effectiveness of a presentation. And I just felt like I had to get it out of my system. All these books to me are something that I, I just love sharing and, and hopefully helping people with. Now, when did you realize that presentations are a problem for, for people? Because we talk about slides and most people living now don't realize that Slides in a presentation used to be actual slides from a slide projector, and people would would flip their slides. And we didn't have even PowerPoint, even PowerPoint in its most basic term, or sorry, its most basic form didn't exist 20 years ago or even 15 years ago. And even 10 years ago, making a presentation uh, using a computer was vastly different than the tools that we have available now. When do you think presentations really got bad and an intervention yeah, um, was necessary? Yeah, I am, um, you know, going through school, I saw plenty of slides and the, uh, I forget what they call, but this, this, the plastic cellophane stuff that you roll on the, on the projector and then the teacher could write on it or he could drop these oh. transparencies on it. Do yeah. You, I just, I like, remember those of, as, yeah, we had those all during my school years growing up, overhead projectors with transparencies. And the teacher always had um, some kind of damp uh, sponge that they would keep to wipe off the, uh, you know, wipe off the overhead projector so that they could keep writing. Or they'd have these transparencies that they'd already created and they'd have like a deck of them that they would throw on the projector. But when I got started in, uh, you know, out of school and got a real job and I started talking to people like juries, 
back then there was really no presentation software. I started practicing in 93. So it was, if it was out there, it was so much in its infancy that I, I wasn't really aware of it or in a position to use it. And back then, and I write about this a little bit in the book, it was the blow up guy. You had to have a blow up guy, no matter what you did. And the blow up guy would answer the phone at any hour of the day. And you'd, and you would um, give him a piece of paper. You wouldn't email it to him. You would give him a piece of paper. You send and, your you send your runner out to the blow up guy's office, and and they would yeah yeah. And then you'd get a, a contract the size of Texas, you know, back to you the next day at seven a.m. And then we all would go into the courthouse every day, and then get in the elevators, and we'd all have these massive blow ups we were carrying. And I still see those around once in a while. People still use them, but not nearly as much. But it was a big deal because you only had so much money and it and it took time and effort. And, you know, it was a sacred document. Once you started writing on the blow up, you could never unwrite on it. So that was a whole nother consideration. And realistically, in, in at least the cases that I worked on, you didn't have more than two or three blow ups on a case. You didn't you know, you couldn't show up with 400 of them. You know, I'm not doing Apple versus Samsung. Right. So. So we had blow up guys. And then I, I saw a computer uh, presentation and I started looking into how much it would cost to get a projector or rent a projector. And I immediately thousands saw of dollars at that point. Yeah, it was. Well, back in that day, you would you would rent one. I mean, there were people that owned them. It was just like the I mean, when the Mac first kind of took off, there were guys with laser printers and like trucks and and you would pay them. They would come and you could print off their laser printer. Or you'd go to a, a business with your with your floppy and you would get your laser printer disk because nobody could afford their own laser printer. And it was the same thing with projectors. So you would have a guy that would uh, rent you a projector. And so uh, I got my hands on one and I, I did a case on it. And and I have to say, I, I don't want to um, I don't want to sound too ostentatious, but I, I really kind of from the beginning had a really good idea visually of what I wanted in slides. And I attribute that to the fact that I'm very much a visual person. And so I never was really hip to the idea of a bunch of words and bullet points on slides. I mean, from the very beginning, I had interesting slides because I love the idea that I didn't need a blow up guy. I could have 40 blow ups. I could have 40 pictures. And in those days, I did a lot of construction type work, uh, legal work. So a lot of my cases involved taking pictures and little diagrams of job sites and things. So uh, I very quickly started using this stuff very effectively. And when I showed up, and we'll get to your question very shortly here. When I showed up at court, people were like, what the heck is this guy got? And I'd show up with a computer and a cart. And back then you had to bring your own screen because no, nobody had a screen. So I had this big, like bazooka looking screen. And sometimes I had a guy helping me that, that was renting me the projector who was there to make sure I didn't break his projector. And so I had all this stuff that would come in and everybody's looking at me like, what, why would you do all this stuff? And then I just would crush them with it because it was so far superior to the blow up guy stuff. And, and I was using it immediately. When I thought the problem occurred was when everybody else started picking up on it. And at first I thought, well, you know, I'm going to lose that advantage. You know, I'm not going to be the only guy there giving these great presentations. But very quickly I saw that just because, you know, you can pick up one of these projectors and presentation software doesn't mean you understand what it is to make a good presentation. 
Well, and then all of a sudden the presentation software became everywhere. Everybody had a copy of PowerPoint at the point in time that it got bundled with the Microsoft Office suite. Everybody was using it and they were using it to the extreme and it became this example of you can't have a lecture without a PowerPoint. You can't have a meeting without a PowerPoint. You can't go anywhere without somebody giving you a PowerPoint presentation on this or on that. And it was the standard format of you know, pick your absolutely horrendous template. And then every slide had four or five bullet points. And then someone would proceed, to, oh, I can't stand this, to read you the bullet points on their slide because their PowerPoint became a substitute for their notes. And we have endured a lot of that. And I hope at this point people are starting, you know, it's it's become death by PowerPoint. And I think people are starting to see that they hate that. And hopefully with your book, they'll start to see how they can get away with that. But up until now, I think people recognize that this is bad, but don't yet recognize that there's something they can do about that. And I guess I wonder, were you ever tempted, you know, back during the dark days, you know, in the late 90s and the early and mid 2000s, when all of this, and I'll pick on PowerPoint, but all of this bad PowerPoint was out there everywhere, that to think that well, you are doing this wrong, David, because everybody else is, is clearly doing it some different way. Uh, I have been very cocky about this the whole time. I mean, I, I've had a lot of great affirmation over the years. I, you know, almost every presentation, like jury I give, at least one juror asks me for copies of my slides at the end, and they all tell me how much they love them. And, you know, when I give a presentation, I get the type of attention from my audience that I'm seeking with the presentation. And, I don't, you know, like I said, inherently, I think one of the good things about it, like I said, I'm a very much a visual thinker. One of the analogies I use in the book is if someone gives you directions, do you write them down on a list or do you draw a map? I think that's a good little kind of test for people. I, For me, every time I draw a map, because I, I just need to kind of see it visually. And, um, you know, so much of my success at Max Barkey is just the fact that I'm wired so funny. But the... um. I need the visual stuff. So from the very beginning, I was only interested in slides that would convey visual information. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's exactly what makes a good slide. It, it's not a bunch of words on the screen. And so I've always really been pretty successful. And I'll add to that, that there's a lot of people upon whom's uh, shoulders I stand. In fact, I put in the end of the book some references to some other, I think, very good books on presentations that you should read if you want to get good at this stuff. But the um, but so I've always had a, a good thing with visual presentations. They've always gone pretty well for me. I don't sound very humble today, do I? Oh, that's all right. You just wrote this great book. So you can you can brag a little. And if not, I'll brag on you. So Yeah. But it, it really is a thing. I mean, one of the big, it, I guess, if you uh, if you want to save yourself 10 bucks, you know, your slides are not your script. Just just remember that one thing today and your presentations will get a lot better. Sure. sure. Your slides are not your script. I mean, like you said earlier, that that guy who stands up and starts a, a presentation and turns around and starts reading words on the screen to you that are already on the screen. You're wasting that my person, time. Well, not only is that person wasting your time, that person's presentation is materially worse than if he were there with no screen behind him at all. Um, that person who gets up and does a presentation and puts a bunch of words on the screen, even if she doesn't turn around and read the screen, but putting a bunch of content on the screen requires the listener or the audience 
to read the screen. If you put words up there, people will read them. It's like uh, Alan Watts did a funny thing, but I'm going to get it wrong. But I think he said, like, whatever you do, don't think about a big pink elephant right now. And what's the first thing you think about? (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking about a big pink elephant. Yeah. So when you put words on the screen, the audience is going to read those words and they're not going to listen to your words. They can't do two things at once. As much as we like to brag how we can all multitask, you cannot read the words on the screen and give your focus to the speaker. So uh, that is one of the reasons why so many presentations are terrible. One of many. So so the way I, I approached it in the book was I talked about what I think, why I think presentations have got to this point where everybody uses terms like death by PowerPoint. And then uh, there's another chapter, and there's a picture of my shoes in there. Did you see that? I really liked that picture of your shoes. Now, do you do you <laughs> tell me when you wear those shoes? You don't like wear those um, out in my public, My daughter right? gave my daughter gave them to me for Christmas a couple of years ago, and as you can see, they look quite new <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know where to wear them. But occasionally, we have like a family outing, and let's kind of fancy pants, and I'll wear them for that, and you know, it's kind of fun, but. Anyway, uh, but but then I focus on kind of the, the beginning part of a good presentation. And this is the part that I think a lot of people miss is storytelling and development of of the whole presentation. One of the biggest mistakes you can make when making a new presentation is to go to Keynote and click new. Yeah, you that is not the place to plan your presentation, because as soon as you get into something like Keynote, there's so many flashy buttons and animations and little tricks you can do that you are immediately going to jump over the most important step of, of a good presentation, which is planning the presentation. Um, so there's a, a, a substantial portion of the book devoted to explaining about planning a presentation or planning how to tell a story. There are some echoes of some Mac Power Users episodes in there, like I noticed the that. cooking ideas, you know, the cooking ideas thing. It works for books. It also works for presentations about how you can develop these things over time. And it gave me an opportunity to try and screencast that, which I've never done. And it was kind of fun. Um, so, but, you know, developing a story is really important. And I actually talked to a, a few, I think Merlin and Merlin Mann did one of the audio interviews in that as well, Wendy, as Wendy, Wendy Cherwinski did the one on planning. So, in fact, right. some some former Mac Power users guests were nice enough to be in the book. So I think that's a very important step that a lot of people miss. And and it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, you need to plan it. But if you've never done this before, how do you start planning a presentation? Where do you start? So I broke it down. I, t- I looked at a lot of the presentations I've done over the years and just kind of took it apart and looked at the things I do to plan a presentation. And I just listed them in the book. So you can kind of have a little bit of a formula to get in there and plan your own presentation. Yeah. And and we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that, that you get into. Um, I, I will tell you one thing that I really liked about this particular book is that I feel like not only were you, that you were telling a story that you kind of followed the cardinal rule of presentations here. And I felt like you were telling your story to some degree because I, I felt like in this book more perhaps than some of your others, there was a little bit more David in this book. You just from the very beginning where one of the very first pictures we see is your shoes, which I looked at those and I said, those are David's real shoes. That's not stock 
stock photography. And I don't think you showed a picture of your your face, but for whatever reason, I knew those were your, were your shoes. Maybe from the trailer. Did you wear those shoes in the trailer? I don't remember. I did. Yeah. I did. <laughs> um, but then towards the end of the book, and, and this was actually one of my favorite chapters, where you talk about presentation day, you, you showed us your toolkit, and then you also had several pictures of you in presentation poses about stand like this, not like this, not like this. not. And it was just, it was so cute. And it was so personable. It, it allowed, I mean, obviously I know you, but it allowed uh, someone who maybe doesn't know you or who maybe only knows you through listening to your voice on Mac power users to connect with you in a much more personal way. So, well, that was kind of intentional because I feel like these things are a piece of me and I wanted more connection with my audience, with my reader in this book that, that, the the toolbox picture is kind of fun and you can see this if you download the sample. So, you know, give you an idea of the book. Um, but I, I got the idea from entertainment weekly. Uh, my wife reads that magazine. I was flipping through it one day and I'm a fan of Jack Johnson music. You know, I like Hawaii. So I like Jack Johnson and he made a new album about a year ago and he had this image they took where they took all the instruments because he famously uses, you know, a lot of stringed acoustic instruments and maybe a set of vibes. He doesn't use a lot of instruments in his, his albums. There's no synthesizers or anything like that. So he took all the instruments and he laid it down in his driveway and they just took a picture of all the instruments he used in the album. And at the time I was planning this book out because I cook ideas, right? And and I was thinking about the section in the book where I'm going to tell people, well, what do you bring with you on presentation? I mean, what is the stuff you should have available to you just in case? And I had a great idea about what I want. I mean, I knew what to bring because I have a toolbox. That's my presentation toolbox. It wasn't hard, you know, and I thought, well, I'm going to do like Jack. I'm going to just lay it on the floor. So I just laid it on the floor in my house and took a picture of it. And did you and like get up on a ladder or something to. Um, <laughs> what I did was I. um I, well, I've told you I have that Olympus PL5 camera, which right. has the has the viewfinder that tilts, and that's at the base of my stairs in my house. And I just laid everything out there, and I stood up on like the second step because I'm a short guy, and I reached out over it as far as I could with my arms and just took a bunch of pictures. And I could see it because I could tilt the viewfinder, and I got a couple good pictures. The trick there was I, I got the f-stop wrong to begin with because I, I always liked that low f-stop, but it came out of focus. I had to kind of fiddle with it and get the f-stop a little higher so I could get a, a better focus on them. But then once I did that, I, I put it in iBooks Author, and then iBooks Author has a pop-up um, tool where you can create little pop-ups. So it came out really clever, and then I took individual pictures of each item and and explained what they are and why I use them. So if you look at it, you see this big layout of all of the stuff with a little um, red plus signs on it. You tap the plus sign and it opens up and it tells you what it is and why. And then with the other one, it's actually taken the exact same thing. The pictures of me individually, I, I, um, I was talking somewhere and I was watching somebody, a, a co-speaker, and they clearly didn't know what she was doing with her hands. And it was distracting because she kept moving around. I said, I got to put in the book a section on what to do with your hands. And I wanted to illustrate what not to do with your hands. And I started looking at stock pictures and I'm like, that's just going to look so lame. And, um, and I said, Daisy, come here. So she, I just gave her the camera and she, I just started posing. It's like mugging all these pictures. And they were, I had a they good time cute. doing it. Yeah. Was, yeah. 
And she she wasn't exactly sure what I was taking the pictures for, <laughs> but um, they came out really good. And then I had some design help with the book. So the people that were doing the design, Grant and, Grant and Steph, um, Graham and Steph, uh, did some nice work on them to make them kind of look field guidey, you know, the, the two-tone image. Well, I want to talk a little bit more um, about the process of telling a story, about the process of putting this this guide together. Um, but before we do, I do want to take a quick break and talk about uh, one of our sponsors for this episode. And our first sponsor for this episode is our good friends are back from MacPaw. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Clean My Mac. And it's I'm really pleased to have them back as a sponsor for this episode and pleased to be talking about Clean My Mac because this is a product that I cannot tell you how many times I personally have used, but also have recommended to friends, family members, the folks in my Mac user group. Uh, it's just a simple but yet surprisingly powerful application to keep your Mac clean, to keep it organized, to remove files that kind of keep it slowed down. And it just, it does everything. So uh, how many times have people asked you, how do I really, really uninstall a file on a Mac? And, you know, most of the time you can uninstall something by dragging it to the trash can, but it leaves all of this little clutter around. Well, Clean My Mac 2 has the ability to truly uninstall a file with just one click. It clears out all of that junk that gets left behind in your system. Well, what about some of those cache files? Or what about um, extra languages that you don't necessarily need? Or what about all of these extra plugins that may have gotten installed either through your web browser or through extra extensions or things like that? Or these other junk files or login items that you may have installed but long forgotten about that are just slowing down the way that your Mac operates? Well, Clean My Mac has a systematic way of going through your Mac and then presenting you with an easy-to-understand interface of, look, this is what I found. These are the things that you can safely clean. These are the things you might want to consider cleaning, um, including things out of your iPhoto library that have maybe just been, you know, duplicated or rotated or, or things that you may not need, which you can completely customize, um, or maybe applications that you haven't used or files that have gone unnoticed for a long time. You know, maybe you've got, like I am notorious for doing sometimes, um, you know, 10 or 12 gigabytes of old episodes of Mac Power users, you know, sitting in a folder somewhere that, that really don't need to be there. Uh, I have cleaned so many gigabytes worth of uh, junk files that I didn't need or old files that I didn't need with Clean My Mac. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how many times it has saved my bacon over and over again. But perhaps what is best about it is that these folks really take safety to heart. Um, they've done their research and they have a safety database that they have put together with over five years of knowledge behind them that they've been carefully curating and building this. In fact, if you want to, there's a blog post that you can read uh, more about it to explain to you how Clean My Mac knows what things they can safely get rid of and what they can't so that you don't have an unexpected surprise, which you may get when using some of these inferior tools just to blanket uh, clean off certain kind of files. Clean My Mac's going to make sure that they don't leave you in that kind of lurch uh, by making sure that they only remove files that are safe to clear off your Mac. So you can go clean up your Mac right now um, and pick up a copy of Clean My Mac 2 by visiting macpaw.com slash clean 
clean my Mac. Uh, it's a product that I use very regularly and I do not hesitate to recommend. Uh, and if you do pick it up from them, please let them know. Send them a tweet, send them a note, drop them a line, whatever you want to do uh, that you heard about them from Mac Power users. And thanks to MacPaw for their continued support of the show. Okay, Katie Floyd, you want to talk about telling stories? Yeah, tell me a story. So how do you, you've talked a lot about, about pre-planning and I know that you're, you're a big bubble maker person. What? Oh, oh yeah. Um, out, mind, not outlining, mind, mind mapping. Yes. Mind <laughs> mapping maker. person. <laughs> bubble maker. You're a bubble maker. Max Barkey, bubble maker. It just fits your personality. I'm a, I'm a big outliner, but that's fine. But more so than just figuring out what you're going to talk about, you have to figure out how you're going to talk about it too, Right. Yeah, you really, I mean, we, we did that cooking ideas episode, which I've refer, I referred to in episode 200 as well. And the idea is if you're going to put together a presentation, you've got to get investment with your audience. You've got to tell a story relevant to them. And, and if you're going to do this right, it's going to take some time. And I know people listening to me are going, well, you know, I'm just giving my department meeting presentation once a week, or I'm just talking about a sales update. Why don't you try and make it memorable? Why don't you try and make it in a way that your audience gets into it and is rooting with you? And you can do this. I I totally believe that anything worth creating a presentation for is worth planning out. And so I wanted to, to talk about that stuff. When I when I first started being a lawyer, it's a baby lawyer, and an old guy told me, an old, you know, salty, you know, attorney says, Look, if you can't summarize your case, in two sentences, you don't know well enough and you need to go back and work on it more. And I took that to heart and I've, I've never forgot it. And I really believe it's absolutely true. So, uh, and I, I deal with some very complicated stuff in the day job, but I still, uh, have that ultimate test. If I can't summarize it in two sentences, I don't know it well enough. Well, that's true for your presentation too. Before you start putting together 50 slides, you know, what is the theme of what you're telling people? What is the the nugget you want them to walk out of there with? And I think that's something that's really hard to figure out and you need to figure it out. So that's the first step of planning is to develop the theme. Okay. So give me an example of, of what a theme might be for a, for a presentation. Um, I know the one that you talked about in your, your trailer is you were doing a a presentation on malaria or maybe give us a sample uh, presentation theme from your book. Yeah, I actually had quite a few in the book. I had a bunch of samples, you know, this is a story of how we can save millions of lives with a simple thing like a mosquito net. Okay. There's a theme, you know, there's a story. This is a story about how my, how I improved presentation skills, changed my life, then my company, then the world. Hey, you know, why not? You, you've got to come up with something aspirational, you know, to yourself, if to no one else, to figure out what it is you're going to use to pull all this together. But I, you need to stop and and answer that question this is a story about. And once you figure out what the story is about, you've got to figure out how it connects with your audience. And then from there, you can start building out the points that you want to make and the logical flow. I mean, there's actually quite a bit involved here. I talk about not only just coming up with a theme, but also what are the points that help make that theme? And what is the emotional energy of the presentation? And I know this is all kumbaya hippie stuff, but it's it works. You know, there are going to be portions of your presentation that are high energy and low energy. And once you start laying out those points you want to make, 
how does all that stuff map out to help you get the audience where you want them to get? I mean, all the stuff you have to think about before you open Keynote. And uh, I, I didn't want to undersell this stuff, so I, I gave it quite a a good portion of the book. I haven't looked here. I think it's about 100 pages worth of the book is all this planning stuff. Now, how exactly do you plan no, that? It's, it's about... I'm sorry. It's about 60 pages. Yeah, it's still a good chunk. But how does that fit into your mind map or into your outline? Because you do have to outline the actual presentation. This is what I'm going to talk about first. This is what I'm going to talk about next. This is what I'm going to talk about after that. And this is how I'm going to conclude it. But how do you... That stuff starts... Go ahead. That stuff starts coming together for you once you get past those initial steps. Once you start getting your theme and your major points and energy mapping. And once you start, you know, figuring out what is the, what's the hook for your audience. If you answer all those questions, then the outline is going to start coming together for you actually pretty easily. So do you start with those questions before you start with, how am I going to talk about building a mosquito net or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I I think about all those big kind of hippie stuff to begin with, and I I have ideas and I have very relative concepts. It will start in, for me, a mind map, but it could work in an outline too. But, you know, you you need to start this stuff. The the reason I don't like an outline for this is because everything should be fluid and it's not linear. It's just concepts and ideas that you're playing with. And as soon as you start putting them in a linear fashion, you start, I think, at least subconsciously to decide, well, that's where it's going to be. And you can't think of putting it anywhere else. And I think during those planning stages, everything has to be subject to the knife. I mean, if you if, even though you wrote it down, you should be willing to cut it out. And and once that stuff starts really gelling for you, and in my case, it takes some time to get to that point, um, then you can start outlining. Then you can start, you know, linearly. That's not a word, is it? Hmm. That Then you can start. Uh, put putting things together in a linear fashion and getting a much better idea of, well, this is kind of the, the flow and the slides I'd be looking for in a presentation like this. At what point do you start figuring out the visual concepts that you're going to need, or does that not come until much later? No, it, it, I think it just comes as you go through the presentation. Sometimes something will come to you very early that makes a lot of sense for illustrating a point, and you'll write it down, and then maybe that that concept will stay as the visual kind of hook right up through presentation day, or maybe it will evolve. But there's nothing wrong with, with starting to make lists of those things and kind of keeping ideas. And, and the further along you get in the process the more evolved it gets and the more likely you are to kind of have the right ideas. Uh, once I, once I open the presentation, once I open a keynote file, I already have a very strong outline of what slides I'm going to use and what visuals I'm going to prepare. Now that's not to say that I may not change something once I start seeing them on the screen or, you know, finding that it doesn't work the way I thought it would, but getting started with a, a nice thorough preparation makes the keynote part a lot more like cranking widgets. And that's what keynote's good for is cranking, you know, cranking the widgets, making the objects, making the animations. It's not good for doing the creative thought about how to make a good presentation. So before you even sit down to open keynote, you'll have, uh, I, I would say even better than a pretty good idea of the flow of your presentation, the yeah. story of your presentation and what, the elements of that presentation are going to be 
and you're really just sitting down and you've probably been noodling on this for days, if not weeks at this point, depending on the magnitude of the presentation that you're giving. Yeah. And then uh, typically I'll have a multi-page outline in Omni Outliner or something like that with analogies and potential image ideas and the uh, touchstone slides or, you know, the, you know, all the stuff that I think I'm going to definitely need is already put together and written down. Yeah. And then when you open up Keynote, you're really just building. And I don't want to spend too much time on Keynote because we're going to get there a little bit later. But when you open up Keynote, you're really just putting it together. You're really building off the recipe that you created with everything else. Yeah, ideally, the when at least for the very first kind of pass through in Keynote, I'm just executing on a plan that's already been created. And then, of course, there may be additional refinements and going through and saying, well, that doesn't really work as well visually as I thought it would in my head and, and changing things yeah. up. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, what about the speaking portion of your presentation itself? Because having sat through a few Max Sparky presentations, I know that there are very few words on in your presentations in total, uh, you may have a few slides with a few keywords or phrases or maybe a notable quote here or there, uh, but I don't think I've ever seen a Max Sparky presentation with bullet points unless you're given a presentation on what makes a bad presentation. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's the idea when you're developing it is, you know, the story you want to tell, you know, getting back to the, you know, the big, the big reveal I gave earlier is your slides are not your script. Slides are not your script. Your slides are there to make you look good. And we actually talked, I talked about this in the interview with Merlin, where he says, you know, the focus of the room should be the audience, which is, I think, makes sense. But I guess my angle to this is the focus of the room is me. When I'm giving a presentation, I want people to focus on what I'm saying. Now, it's my job to connect that to the audience and make them want to follow me. But the focus is 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 me me standing there my hand gestures my words and the slides are there as a supporting cast member right. you know and like one of the tricks i use and i talk about this in the book is is the um it's kind of the inside joke thing where you make and this works in in uh, this works much better in like tech talks than it does in front of a jury but even in front of a jury to a certain degree i've used this technique where I will be talking about something and I will make an offhand comment. And then at this time I make the offhand comment, I'll click the trigger and an image supporting me. Like I'll make an offhand comment about, you know, taking a bath and then a picture of a rubber duck appears on the screen. And then I click it again and the whole thing lasts maybe three or four seconds. And so it sounds like I'm making an offhand comment, but it's actually all engineered into the presentation and there's a slide that supports it. And if you're watching the picture of the duck doesn't mean anything, but the picture of the duck combined with the words I say may give you a little chuckle or may make you think, wow, it's an Easter egg. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it, an Easter egg in a presentation. And, you did this in the and, uh, the Macworld presentation that you gave, the five-minute tech talk, which I think had something like a bazillion slides in it. But it was very clever. And the one that I remember, and I think you may have done more than one, but the one that I particularly remember even to this day, and it's been months since you've given that that tech talk, is you said the words, I have a very particular set of skills. And very briefly, for you know just a few seconds, a picture of Liam Neeson flashed on the screen. Yeah, and that that's a good example. So... And the, and the people in the audience got a kick out of it and they thought it was funny and it happened very quickly. And the people in the audience that weren't paying attention 
sat up and they're like, what did everybody just laugh at? He just said a very particular set of skills, but they weren't paying attention close enough. And it's kind of like a little tease. And you're like, hey, maybe he'll do something like that again. Maybe I better pay a little more attention. And I know that sounds manipulative, but once again, in my mind, you, Mr. Speaker or Miss Speaker, are the focus of that room and you need to do something to pull them into you. And that's just one of the little tricks I use. But all that stuff is planned. You can't just do that. You know, you can't think of that while you're standing there. Right. But when you're giving a presentation, you're giving the presentation, but there is also typically a talk that goes along with it or a speech or whatever the words are that that you want to use with that. So, yes, there's the, the visual aspect, the presentation aspect, but you better know something to be able to back that up as well. Now, obviously, in the process of creating up this presentation, hopefully you, you know your topic, you know your subject area, and you've even refined this a little bit more as you go through this. But do you ever, and I've never seen you speak with note cards, so I would imagine that you don't, but what recommendations do you have for people in terms of knowing their speech or knowing their topic or be able to, to coordinate their speech to their presentation without so that they don't sit there and stare at their bullet points, because those bullet points that, that we hate so much have become quite a safety net because those bullet points were the speaker's notes. And so the speaker really didn't have to prepare much for the presentation because their notes are sitting right there on the screen. And sure, they've probably run through it a couple of times and sure, they probably know the material, but they didn't have to prepare because their notes are sitting there on the screen in front of them and everybody else. But when you give a Max Sparky style presentation, you don't have that crutch. Your your notes are not sitting on the screen. If you have a, a momentary lapse, all you've got on the screen is your rubber ducky. And, and that could mean any of a number of things. <laughs> yes, it can, Katie. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, uh, well, I would, I would argue, and I do in the book, the, the last chapter of the book is in some ways the chapter I'm most proud of because it's called presentation day and it talks about everything. You know, what do you do after you've written a presentation, after you've done the planning, after you've created it in keynote, you know, what do you do to get yourself ready to show up and give a presentation? And it, it talks about what types of prep you do at home or at the office, what types of practice you do. It talks about what you do the morning of the presentation. And then it talks about when you stand up, you know, what are the tricks to use to kind of make sure everything goes well. And I, I try and address this stuff through it. But what I would really argue, and I keep harping on this planning point, but if you really take it seriously and you plan appropriately for a presentation, uh, I don't care even if you've got almost no experience presenting when you stand up on presentation day, because you've gone through the really hard work of, of preparing for it, right. You're going to be just fine. I mean, th there are tricks. Like one of the tricks I talk about in the book is memorize your first 30 seconds. You know, I've been doing this, you know, I'm 46 years old. I've been a lawyer for 20 years. I still memorize the the opening of every major presentation I give, not only to like juries, but at Macworld and, and tech talks and everywhere else, because I, I want to get off on the right foot. If you get off on the wrong foot, everything, you know, goes crazy. I, I think the analogy I used in the book was it's like a rocket ship and you're on the launch pad and sometimes you blast off into space and sometimes 
the rocket ship kind of like falls in on itself and turns into a big explosion. <laughs> and, and, and the launch period is, is the most critical, you know, you got to get it off the pad. So memorizing those first 30 seconds is like this great big relief crutch you have. So you stand up there and you just, you just, you just, you know, nail those 30 seconds and you're off to a great start. Your ship is, you know, blasted off a launch pad. And after that, it's going to flow well for you. You know, that's the most terrifying moment for me to this day uh, when I start a trial and when I stand up and say, ready for trial. You know, that moment before everything really starts in earnest and you've done all this preparation and now here you are and this is the day and there's no more time for prep or anything. Here it is. And then as soon as I get started, I'm fine. I'm having a great time. But boy, that to this day, that, that moment between saying ready to trial and maybe that first five minutes before you really get started in earnest is to me is absolutely terrifying. Mm, that's true. All right. Well, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about presentation day. And I want to talk a little bit more about um, actually the bulk of this book, you talked about keynote and, and how yeah. to use some of these skills in keynote. But perhaps before we get there, I do want to take a second break for our second sponsor for this episode. Yeah. And that's Drobo. Um, you know, I, did you know that Drobo now has a generation three device out? I am aware of that. Yes. It, it is crazy. They've got a new Drobo out. It's the Generation 3. And the thing about Drobo is because they've been around a while and they've got this great technology, you can take, if you've got a Generation 1 or Generation 2 Drobo, you can take out your four drives, get one of these new Generation 3 Drobos, which, by the way, is cheaper. It's only 350 bucks, and I've got a discount code for you in just a minute. And you can just move the drives into the new one, and it's going to pick up just fine. That's amazing to me. I remember how revolutionary the Drobos were when we first saw those very first Drobos at Macworld. Gosh, back when we first met David, I remember seeing some of the very first Drobos uh, and how far that they've come. But the fact that if you bought one of those very first Drobos at one of those very first Macworlds that they exhibited at, that you can still use everything in one of your current Drobos today, the, the fact that they've preserved that is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, that that was years ago. So and, you know, in tech world, that's that's ancient history. But let's say you bought the generation one Drobo and you've had it several years. Well, now you get yourself for 350. You can get yourself a new Drobo. It's USB three. It's three to five times faster. It plugs right into your Mac and you could just take out the drives of your old one, stick it in a new one and you're off to the races. Um, it's It's fantastic. It's optimized for time machine now. So you can create a um, separate disk volume to use with Time Machine, which is nice and fast. Uh, you can set the maximum size for the volume. So if you want to you know, dictate how much space you give it and you can control how much uh, Time Machine uses. Uh, they've also got protection from power failures. Uh, the Generation 3 has an internal battery and a small SSD cache uh, to store data being written to the device in the event of a power failure. So if the power, if the cord gets yanked you're much less likely to lose data this way um they've got it uh, they've got more data protection it's got an optional choice to protect against really bad luck it's got you know for two two drive failures if you want to get the one that does that the you know drobo was founded on the idea of delivering smart storage that grows with you and protects what matters and they're delivering on that the new uh, generation three device is awesome i've got one here sitting on my desk i love it 
Uh, I've got my time machine back up to it now. And frankly, with this, these books, when you're working with creating these massive media files, and trust me, there is a lot of media behind this book, uh, that's exactly what you need. Something fast, reliable, that makes the backup for you right on the, the go. Uh, the manufacturer's suggested retail price is three fifty. Listeners can save $50 off any Drobo model with the code MPU50. That's, once again, MPU50. Drobo's been a longtime supporter of the Mac. They came in. They've got great software. It's a great solution for Mac users that want to have a have their, their data backed up. You've got the Drobo uh, thir- uh, third generation, which can plug right into your device. If you want, they've got networked ones you can put on your network and treat as a network-attached storage device. Whatever your need is, they've got you covered. Go check it out at Drobo.com. Yeah, David, and I think they're actually running a promotion for uh, owners of older model Drobos that if you send them the information that you have proof of ownership of a prior Drobo model, they'll let you save even more. They'll send you a little rebate if you buy the new one. It's pretty cool. Oh, so you get the Mac Power Users discount, Mm -hmm. and then you get the prior owner rebate, and and you don't even have to reformat your drives. You just switch it over. Pretty cool, huh? That's, that's a triple win. Triple whammy. So uh, thanks, Robo, for your continued support of the show. So, David, I, I alluded to the fact that this chapter might have been a little bit long, and I assure you that wasn't out of – that was – not out of any kind of animosity towards this chapter. It was nothing but love for this chapter. It was just, you know, I was on a tight deadline. I had to get this book read in, in a single weekend because I had to talk to the talk to you about it um, for this episode. Because, you know, you, you kept you kept the lid pretty tight on this presentation book and only gave it to me right before I, I headed out for my trip. That's because it wasn't ready until right before you left. Oh, is that um, why? Is that why? Yeah, but, they- but chapter three was entirely on Apple Keynote, which I know is your presentation tool of choice. Now, you do talk a little bit about some other presentation tools, but it, it's clear that, that Keynote is your baby here. Yeah, yeah. Don't buy this book if you want to get good at PowerPoint. It, it's just not. Well, it's all about Keynote. Well, but, but the concepts still apply. Yeah, I would say like the presentation day stuff and the planning stuff all equally apply. And frankly, a lot of the animation stuff I teach in Keynote could work in PowerPoint. But, you know, one of the the, uh, decisions I face with this book is, do I want to give shallow treatment of PowerPoint and Keynote or deep treatment of of PowerPoint or Keynote? And I knew immediately I wanted deep treatment. I wanted someone to get really, really good at one of these apps. And if you're listening to the show, I think the choice is probably Keynote, in my opinion, it is at least. And so I, I chose Keynote and the book ended up with, like I said, 44 screencasts. And the vast, vast majority of those are techniques inside Keynote about how to make things happen. Right. And I believe as you were writing this book, we had the new iWork suite come out, the new version yeah, it was of a, Keynote. It was a moving target, honestly. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I had a big portion of it written, and then, well, I had a big portion of it outlined, and then we got a whole new iWork suite. And then I had a big portion of it written complaining about things that they took out, and then Apple kept sending out updates and fixing things, and then I'd have to go and cut sections of the book because things I was complaining about were already fixed. And then I kind of found my peace with the new Keynote. I know there's a lot of people out there that don't like the what Apple's done, but I get it. You know, the with <laughs> these guys are trying to make a a solid code base to work on both iOS and Mac. And in order to do that, they had to step back a little bit. But moving forward, it, it's it's a really great app. And, and I've made some really great presentations with the new version and, and they've added a web version. So um, 
it was a bit of a moving target, but at the end of the day, I was able to kind of give you a nice systematic approach for getting good at the application. And one of the things I did in that chapter three was I inter interspersed throughout it additional advice about making presentations. I didn't want, for instance, to have a big long chapter saying, don't use too many bullet points, you know, don't use too many fonts, blah, blah, blah. Instead, what I did is I would intersperse that among the sections in the keynote chapter itself, because when you're building a slide is really when you need the advice about typography, not in the planning of the presentation section. So it's not just a bunch of technical stuff in that in that chapter. There's also a bunch of good practical advice. In fact, did you see Katie on one page? I don't have, let me see here if I can find it, but I had a lot of fun. You know, I always have fun writing these books and I, I do put Easter eggs in the books. And one of them I put in here was, uh, well, there's a couple in the history of keynote chapter. Did you notice the hieroglyphics? I did. Yes. Did, did you look at them closely? Oh, I'm flipping back through right now. What did they say? That was kind of fun. There's oh. something in the hieroglyphics that you should look at. Oh, <laughs> okay. This is such great radio, but I, I, I embedded, well, with, with Graham's help, I put in a keynote icon in the Egyptian hieroglyphics. Oh, so you, you should have told him that. I don't care. Listen, it's a $10 book. If you, there's a lot in there. If you want to, if you want to go read it, you should, uh, but, but the, um, in the, uh, book on typography and the page on typography, um, I put the word bleh at the bottom, B-L-E-H. Right. And I used I used four fonts for that. Do you think you can guess which four fonts I used for that? Uh, I'm going to flip to it, but I'm going to guess um, San Francisco, Comic Sans. No, I didn't I didn't use San Francisco because nobody uses that anymore. But, but that was one of your favorites. Yeah, I know. But I, I didn't use that one. Ransom Note? No, no. The, these are modern fonts. They're not classic Mac fonts. Oh, well, that would have been fun if you'd use some classic Mac fonts. Yeah, I guess I should have, but I didn't. Well, Times Roman is in there. Okay. Got Papyrus in there. Oh, yeah. That's a bad one. Yeah, Comic Sans. Sans, Comic Sans. No, I think and, and of course, and I ran it off with Ariel. No Helvetica Noe? No, none of it. Okay. I guess we'll talk about later about the design of the book, because this one was quite different than prior books. Yeah, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit about, about the design of the book. Now, one of the things I noticed in the keynote chapter, and I didn't know if this was – I was reading this on my, my iPad mini when I was on vacation, largely. And I noticed that a very large number of the keynote slides and the keynote images that you were given were done on keynote for iOS. And I didn't well, know if I'm you if you did that because – um, you figured that a lot of people would be reading this on iOS. Now, obviously, you switch back and forth between the Mac yeah. and the iOS version. But am, am I am I misremembering that, that it seemed like a, a I don't want to say a disproportionate, but a, a larger number than I expected was on Keynote for iOS. And, and that was, number one, a little surprising, but but also very helpful to me. Because I can tell you that I have never really used Keynote for iOS as a mechanism to create Keynotes. I certainly have used it to edit some Keynotes and for playing Keynotes. But anytime I really want to create a Keynote, I pop open Keynote for Mac, and that's where I begin 
the process of creating a keynote. And I think by by focusing or at least featuring keynote for iOS, and I won't say focusing, but featuring is a good word, keynote for iOS in this book, you really opened my eyes, at least, to a lot of things that are popular or are possible on the iOS platform. Yeah, the they um I'd say the majority of it is on the Mac, but uh for everything I taught how to do on the Mac, I also taught how to do it on iOS. And and I did focus on iPad because it's just really hard to, even though you can do it on the iPhone, a lot of that stuff is pretty hard on that little screen. Yeah, it but, is. So there's a lot of screencasts and videos and and tricks in there that that are just focused on iOS. Uh but the majority of it, I would say, is probably Mac-centric, but I wanted someone who reads the book to be able to to work on any platform. And wh- frankly, one of the really nice things about Keynote these days is the way it seamlessly shares your data between these devices. And the ability to stand up in front of a room and wirelessly present with an iPad mini is something that everybody should be familiar with that, that does this stuff. Right. And you talk about some what I would consider more basic concepts, such as using grids and using guides to keep things aligned, but little things like that make a huge difference. But then you also get into some very advanced concepts of things like building these complex moves and, and using patterns and graphics to, to build these very complex animations and things that I really didn't even think of Keynote as a, as a true animation tool. Yeah. It, you know, you can get very, even just using the basic graphic tools available in Keynote, you can do some really great stuff with animation. Uh, in the book, I equated animation to like eating dessert. I mean, if if putting the slide together and all the components is your vegetables, animation is the dessert. And you can really do some amazing stuff. At one point in the animation section, there's a screencast in there where I tell a story about four squares. And, you know, they all have personalities and it's all animated. And it looks like it looks like something that a you know professional animator might put together with the bouncing and squishing of these squares, and it's all just stuff Apple programmers have baked into Keynote, and anybody can do it with a little work. Another thing I was able to do with this book is iBooks Author has a feature where I can embed a Keynote presentation itself. So one of the areas of particular concern to me, and I haven't decided yet if this is just because I'm a lawyer or if there's other people that need this as well, but I think presenting timeline data with a presentation is something that everybody could get better at. A lot of times I see people do timelines and they're terrible. And you do that with B-Docs? I do it partly with B-Docs and I, I actually show four different ways to make timelines. And for some of, each one has its own screencast. So you can kind of walk through how I did it. And some of them have the actual um, keynotes, I'm sorry, the actual timeline slides embedded in the book. So you can watch the presentation, but you can also just click through the slides and see how it would come across on your screen. And um, that was that was fun. Now, you show us so many incredible tricks and tools for how to create objects, how to create animations, how to do very professional transitions. But I think you also need to be a little bit wary because there there is a delicate balance that you need to achieve because we have all seen those presentations that look like, forgive me, um, you know, a, a teenager went a little crazy with Keynote and you've got different size fonts for everything and you've got a trans- different transition on every other slide and you've got things zooming and, and panning across the, the pages everywhere. Um, how do you How do you find that happy balance? Well, I think generally you you have to consider your audience. Like every year, 
even though my kids don't go to the elementary school anymore, I, I give a, a talk at the elementary school about the judicial system to f- fifth graders. And it's the the story of Humpty Dumpty. And did, did he fall off the wall or was he pushed? You know, and, and we do a, a mock trial and the kids play the roles. And I give a presentation about how everything, you know, how does a courtroom work and all this stuff. And I have this and there's so much animation and flipping things and the, the kids love it. But that's an anime. That is a presentation I'm not going to be giving to, um, you know, adults. Uh, so you have to consider your audience and then you just have to kind of be more subtle than you think. I, I equated it to exclamation points. I mean, fancy animations and things like that. If you use too many of them, it's just like yelling all the time. And then, you know, the, the dynamic range of the presentation it loses its its punch. I mean, you need to have quiet parts and loud parts. So there's a good time for animations. There's a bad time for it. Even just transitions. A lot of presentations I give don't have any transition. They just, you know, blink between one slide to the next. Others may just have a really gradual fade or a simple animation. Then others may have things blowing up. It depends on what you're doing. Yeah. So Keynote gives us so many great tools for transitions and things catching on fire and and different types of animations. What are some of your your favorites to use that you think maybe people don't quite know about or or maybe are lesser known? Uh, that it's just I, I think what you should do. There is really no simple answer to your question because it just depends. Like a lot of times, the like the little pop animation is a really good one. Like when you're building a, a timeline element, I used pop quite a bit, where you have a little box with an image or a piece of text in it, and you just want it to pop onto the screen. It, it, it's kind of whimsical, but it's not intrusive. And you can use that in a professional setting, I think, with no problem. Some of the more edgy ones I've used in front of like the day job type of stuff is occasionally I use, they've got one, I forget the name of it offhand. Um, they've got the one where you drop words and dust rises. You know, in fact, uh, Apple famously uses this when they do price drops, you know. I've used that one on occasion. I've used some of the more kind of edgy ones on occasion, but once again, it really depends on on what you are doing. What I would recommend is if you're going to get serious about this stuff is open up Keynote and put a couple objects on a screen and just click through the transitions and animations. And, and you need to have kind of a working knowledge of what is available to you. So the next time you're putting something together and you think, well, what would be perfect to, you know, drop an orange into the middle of the screen. And you know, inherently, oh yeah, there's that one that you can drop. I want to use that one, but you're not going to know unless you go check them out. And the way keynote works now is you can open the animation inspector and you can just click through them. You don't have to actually run the slide. You just click through them and it previews each one as you click through them. So the whole thing will take you two minutes to familiarize yourself with all of them. I want to talk a little bit more about Keynote and then a little bit about how you made this book. But before we go there, I do want to talk about our next sponsor for this episode, and that is lynda.com. And I know I've talked about this before, but I just got to keep saying it. I love lynda.com in the summertime. And, you know, summer's a little bit slower for many people. It's a little bit slower time of year for me. And, you know, maybe your TV shows are in reruns. Maybe your kids are home from school. Maybe you're home from school. And instead of just kind of vegging out and losing the day 
maybe you can actually use a tool like lynda.com to help keep you up to date um, with software or pick up brand new skills or explore new hobbies. And lynda.com has a series of vid- easy to follow video tutorials on any of a number of topics, uh, whether you want to get up to date on online tools or whether you want to learn how to use Photoshop or uh, improve your photography skills. They have literally thousands of video courses in any variety of topics. Uh, at this point, they've got over 2,400 courses taught by industry experts with even more be at, being added weekly. Um, and lynda.com works directly with software companies to provide timely training on brand new versions. So if the latest version of whatever piece of software you're interested in hit the market, there's a pretty good chance that lynda.com already has an updated tutorial on there so you can get up to speed. They've got courses for all different types of uh, experience levels, whether you you're a beginner or advanced, and they're very easy to search. So you can dig right in and say, I want to do an entire course on, say, learning how to use logic, or maybe I'd want to do just to learn a particular thing for logic because I've got a basic idea, but I need how to, to know how to do this a little bit better. So ask yourself, what is it that you want to learn more about? Um, maybe you can build your resume some over the summer. Um, maybe you can learn some new skills. You know, for example, you can learn about Microsoft Office, Adobe Creative Cloud, Final Cut Pro, Logic Pro. You can learn how to get up and running with If This Then That. They've got courses on Evernote. I'm sure they've got courses on Keynote and presentations, David, if you, you want to learn technically how to use more about Keynote if the 473 pages that you wrote about it in your book weren't enough. Uh, you can learn how to use your iPad for business. You can learn about Google Docs, uh, all kinds of things you can learn about on lynda.com. But you can try it before you buy it if you're still a little bit skeptical. So visit lynda.com, that's L-Y-N-D-A.com slash users, and you can try it for free for seven days. Uh, as many courses as you want, and once you decide to buy, uh, it's just 25 bucks a month. And it's not a course, but just a month. So go check them out. Again, that's lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com slash users, and thanks to them for continuing to support the show. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in here about keynote. Yeah. So on on the topic of keynote, do you find that you do most of your building of keynote? I would imagine that like me, you do most of your building of keynotes on on keynote for Mac. But as the iOS apps have evolved, has any of that changed? Uh, it depends. I mean, I I am certainly capable of building a presentation on the iPad. I've I've done it uh, generally though. You know, kind of getting back to the beginning of the show, I'm really anal retentive and I spend a ton of time planning these presentations out. And it's not very often that I have to kind of gen up a presentation at the last minute. Uh, but to, to the extent I have, like I've, I have created slides on an airplane on my iPad, so I've, I've done it. But uh, largely when I make a presentation, I have plenty of time and I end up doing a lot of the work on the Mac. Like there are certain tools I like that that are just easier to do on the Mac with this stuff. Like Timeline 3D, I think Timeline 3D works better for me on the Mac than it does. They they do have an iOS version, but it's easier to kind of work with it on the Mac. And a lot of times I'm working with a lot of documents or PDFs or Pixelmator kind of stuff, and it's easier to have the Mac open for that. But you know they they have largely got the two you know the iOS and the Mac version feature compliant one of the things that's missing on the iOS that 
that I use all the time is uh, style formats. You you can, you know, Keynote has a word processor embedded in it. And even though I don't use a lot of words, when I do use words, I want them to use a uniform style system. And while those styles will show up on the iOS version, you can apply a header style or a, a quote style. You can't actually change the format of that style on the iOS. You have to do that on the Mac. And when you're creating your, your keynote, um, talk a little bit about exactly um, how you decide, you know, putting in images and and putting in those types of things. I know you talk a lot about um, putting in videos and putting in clips and putting in clip arts and things like that and actually setting up your template. Do you use the plain, um, the, the templates that come with keynotes or, and, you know, they've got the drop-ins and things like that so you can really just drag and drop your images and your videos and things like that in? Or do you create your own templates from scratch for keynote or do you use kind of a hybrid approach? I, I've done both. I mean, I've, I've bought, uh, templates from third parties. I have, I've used the, the built-in ones. I mean, the Apple design templates are really nice. Yeah. And because everybody's using PowerPoint, it's an unfair advantage because, you know, people that you present to are often not going to be familiar with the keynote templates. So they look great to them, partly because they've just never seen them before. Um, right. Uh, but but we're going to be a, losing that advantage at some point. It's just as becoming yeah, more popular. I, I, I'd like to think so. But but just the way, you know, Apple is very good at design focused, you know, type work. And Keynote is the most design focused element of an office suite as a presentation software. Sure. I've also heard from from people, frankly, at Apple that, you know, Keynote was a big focus of Steve. You know, Steve Jobs really wanted a great presentation tool and he wanted it made by his company. So that clearly helped, you know, the the beginnings of keynote make it a great application from the beginning because the you know the big guy wanted a good presentation software and you know that he was going to be using it so it better be right um but I, I do think that a template is very important and i also think you know to follow up on that are these mat the concept of master slides and i talk about that in the book and do screencasts and how to use them but you know one of the nice principles of a good presentation is that it, it, this continuity of format and design throughout it. If you uh, go up, you know, going back to the bad presentations you were talking about earlier and you go through and they have different fonts on every page and they have different types of pictures and pictures in different places and the text in a different place. It's, it's chaotic for the audience to follow. And I would argue that even if they're not sure why it's chaotic to them, they are going to perceive that there's something wrong. Whereas if you have a, a, a format of slides where the basic same type, types of information are in the same places consistently throughout the presentation, it's going to be easier for them not to get lost in that and once again, listen to your words. So, you know, the master slides are a great way to make that happen. And one thing a lot of people don't know is you can make your own custom master slides. If you're, if you're doing a sales presentation on, you know, chewing gum, you can make some really great master slides that have chewing gum pictures in them or whatever, and, and just reuse that stuff throughout it. Um, or media placeholders is what you were referring to earlier. A media placeholder is a little box on a screen. It's an exact size, an exact, exact dimension, and you can drop a picture on it and it will just fit in there. And it's, they're, they're really easy to make them. 
And people need to to try this stuff because I I screencast that so you can understand how. But if you just pick up a few of these tools, you can make a really great, consistent looking presentation. And, And I would argue that that is one of the keys. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about presentation day because I, I know we've, we're, we're cutting short on time here. I want to talk a little bit yeah. about presentation day and then I, I've got to talk a little bit about creating this book. So presentation yeah. day was perhaps my favorite chapter in this, in this book. Um, I certainly learned a lot from the keynote chapter and that's something that honestly I'm going to have to go back and, and watch and, and we reread a couple of, of, of times. But I think that's something that, you know, people can dig in and dig out to of, of things that they need, you know, read through it once and then go back for reference. But getting ready for presentation day, we talked earlier about practice, practice, practice. But one of my favorite things, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, um, is this presentation toolkit and being prepared for presentation day. Just making sure that nothing catches you off guard because something bad will happen. It's so easy. I mean, if you look at, you know, people can spend a lot of time preparing. And if you, you know, if you're buying my religion, you're going to spend a lot of time preparing your presentation. So why put that at risk to show up and have the wrong connector or show up just a little bit late and have some technical problem that you could have fixed if you just had another 20 minutes. So I, I talked through all that. One of the things I really like in this chapter was um, I wanted to make, I wanted to turn everybody into an AV geek. Mm, yeah, I think you did a good th- job. Well, the reason I say that is because there's a lot of really smart people out there that make really amazing presentations, but they have no clue how any of this stuff connects up. And they've just never, for one reason or another, never taken the time to learn, maybe because there's not a simple explanation of how it all works. And this is something that you should know. And it's something that anybody can know. It's not that difficult. So I made these grids and I took all these pictures and I set it up where I'd say, okay, if you've got, if you show up and there's a VGA connector and here's a picture of a VGA connector and you've got a Mac with this connector, these are the pieces you need to make it work. And I did that for every potential connection between an iPad, an iPhone and a Mac and and the most common projector connections. So it's kind of like a cheat sheet. So you can just go through and say, okay, I need one of these cables and one of these connectors. And if you've got the toolbox I'm telling you about, you've got all that stuff with you already anyway. You know, you that should, was kind of fun. You should just consider selling a toolbox. I don't know if you can put together some kind of package on Amazon and then, <laughs> and then link it yeah. where, where here's the toolbox and here's all the stuff that, that goes in the toolbox. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I'd probably make more money on that than the books. Well, you, <laughs> but, well yeah. you, you've got to you got to wait before the show comes out. Put it together and put a link in the show notes. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I just I wanted it. I wanted someone to to read this book and say, okay, I've got it. I've got this. You know, it, it shouldn't be. It's not that hard. You don't need to be an AV geek. You just need to learn a couple little connections. And then there's like simple advice in there. Like when I go to give a presentation out of town, I tell the people. If, if it's at all possible, will you please go take your phone and just take a picture of the back of the projector and email it to me? Yeah. And, and you know, then you get that picture of the projector. You know exactly what the connections you need before you get on the plane. So you can have everything you need with you and you don't have to make a mad trip to the Apple store because all of a sudden something's a little different. Well, and probably if you're doing a presentation in town, it's no big deal to throw the toolbox in the back of your your car. If you're doing a presentation, yeah, that's actually what I recommend. Yeah, if you're doing it in the trunk. If you're doing a presentation, you got a big trunk, man. Um, you, so you got your keyboard, you got your project. I mean, you got a lot of stuff back there. But yeah, um, if you're doing a presentation out of town, you probably don't want to take all this stuff if you don't have to. 
Yeah, but if they send you a picture, you're probably good. Right, right. So, all right. Well, we're coming up on our last 15 minutes or so. I have got to talk to you a little bit about the making of this book. And um, But before we do that, let's take a quick break and talk about our last sponsor for this episode. Yeah, and that is our friends at Smile. And I want to talk about, in particular, PDF Pin for iOS. We've talked in the past about PDF Pin for the Mac. And today I wanted to talk about their iPhone and iPad applications. Managing PDFs is a natural for the iPad and, frankly, the iPhone, too. And Smile has got you covered. They've got two applications. They've got PDF Pin for the iPad and PDF Pin for the iPhone. These guys understand PDFs, and they've been making you know the best software in this for the Mac for years, and they translated that very nicely over to the iPad and iPhone. Using both PDF Pin for uh, the iPad and the iPhone, you can read and edit PDF uh, documents read on your iOS device. Not only that, you can store documents in the iCloud. And because they've got the application on the Mac as well, you've got that nice iCloud storage where everything just magically appears between the two devices. They've also got Dropbox for sharing and synchronizing between devices if Dropbox is your thing. You can retrieve and save PDFs uh, with Dropbox, Evernote, Alfresco, Box, Google Docs, and you can even share with a computer with Wi-Fi or transfer using iTunes or FTP. You know, whatever way you want to get documents back and forth, you can do it. Once you get them on the iPad or iPhone, you're in great shape because uh, they've got some of these great tools like the ability to add text to an existing PDF. I mean, how many times have you got a PDF? Everything looks great and you see one little typo in the middle of it. You don't want to go back to your Mac and have to regenerate the whole PDF. Um, with PDF Pen for iPad, you can just select that text and make a change to the text right in the PDF, right on your iPad. It's it's like magic. Um, you can correct text in the original PDF with editable text blocks. You can move and resize and delete images in the original PDF. You can import images from your photo library. So let's say you took a picture with your iPhone. You can drop it into a PDF right there. You can say frequently used images like signatures and objects for use in future uh, PDF documents. And you can fill out PDF forms, which is one of the best uses for this stuff on mobile. Um, I have signed contracts using PDF pen on my iPhone, you know, while sitting at a restaurant. It's just that easy. Wait, um, let me guess. You, you were eating a taco, right? No, probably spicy carrots. Oh, okay. Probably spicy carrots. But uh, you can save... Um, uh, you can draw lines and arrows and rectangles. You can do a lot of the stuff that you're used to doing on the desktop version of a PDF application, except using the convenience of your phone or an iPad. You can also mark up documents with highlighting and underscoring. That's really the only use I have for a stylus. I've never really got into the stylus with my iPad, but I carry one with me and I love it for highlighting and marking up documents You know, because I spend so much time in PDFs. It's perfect for that. Uh, you can copy, combine, rename, and delete files. It's got a nice thumbnail view in the sidebar, so you can skim through documents very quickly. And you can email the PDF file when you're done. Speaking of the stylus, they support Jot Touch and the Java Stylish and even the Pogo Connect pressure-sensitive styluses. So whatever you're looking for in terms of a stylus support, they've got you covered. It's a fantastic application. It's one of those that I just use every day, and Smile just keeps making it better. So thanks, Smile, for supporting the podcast, and go check out PDF Pin for iPad and iPhone today. All right, David, 
getting to the making of this field guide, um, this one was a little bit different. I know the the obvious difference with this field guide is, is first off, all of your field guides are beautiful. They're all very interactive. But this one was special because I know you employed some some special design help with this field guide. Yeah, I am. Just before we get there, uh, on the presentation day stuff, the one thing we didn't talk about at all, and I don't want to get into it now, but there's a lot of very specific advice I have about standing up and talking. And Oh, I techniques. love that section, yes. Yeah, and that's if if that's an issue for you, it's almost, I mean, to toot my own horn, I think that's almost worth the book right there, if, if that's something that you have an issue with. But getting back to the book, I, I've always felt like, and I've said this before on our shows, you know, I, I'm I'm a sucker for Pixar movies. And the reason is because they tell a really good story. They have top-notch technology. But at the end of the day, they tell a good story. And, and I want every field guide to tell a good story. And But the one thing I felt like I was letting down my audience with was the design. Because I did it myself. Every every prior field guide I designed myself. And well, I, I don't think you I were got, ever letting anybody down. I think you just well, ratcheted it up a level with this one. I, I think I've got a good eye for this stuff. I understand white space, and I've I've watched the Linda videos, and I've read books, and I've I understand the concepts. But there's a difference between being an amateur and a professional, and and so I've always felt like that could be better. And I talked to some friends who 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 pointed me towards um Graham and Steph at Make Do Good. It's called Make Period Do Good. And these guys are in San Francisco. They're just wonderful people and top-notch designers. And I sat down and in fact Steph has her own book in the iBook store. It's a book about healthy eating. And I saw her book and I'm like, wow, she really knows what she's doing. And and then we um we started talking and they were very eager to kind of help me and give me some advice. It, it was an interesting engagement because I'd never worked with a professional designer before. And it wasn't one of those things where I just said, here's all my words and my screencast, go make a book for me. It was very much, I mean, you know, the iBookstore is a great place, but I mean, it's still growing. It's not this huge market yet. So you can't just like hire a team to go make the book for you. You've got to do a lot of the work yourself. And um, it was a very collaborative process. And they gave me a ton of help figuring out the right typography and layout and design. But then I went and kind of built the book and then they kind of helped me make it look better. And it was it was very collaborative and they're just wonderful people. And it's just one more experience uh, for me in the whole Max Barkey world of meeting a great person. I mean, I've met so many great people and, and Graham and Steph are just like that. I mean, one of the, the best things is the cover. I mean, the cover design for all the prior books is I had the idea for the cover for the original paperless book where I wanted a leather field guidey looking book and I wanted kind of a, to look like a traditional book. I like the dichotomy of a traditional looking book with all these videos and all this weird stuff inside of it. And Darren executed on it. Darren Rolf did a really great job of what I told him and for the cover for this book. I went to Graham. I said, I want to evolve it. I want the same general idea, but I want to evolve. And that's all I really said. And he came up with this great idea. Now, so I've got a projector on the screen, uh, on the cover, you know? You've you've talked in the past about 
putting these books together. And I, I know that you write the book, you get all the text together, you have an editor that you work with, um, that once you've written all the text and you've got it in fairly final form, it, it goes into uh, pages because it has the correct changes and you, you use that with your editor. But you have always done the actual layout in iBooks Author. You, you really have to with these types of books. So how did that work when you were working with an editor? Because the design, it, it's more than just having different types of images and different type of stock art in here. It, the design is really integrated throughout the book. So were you sending the iBooks author file back and forth with your editors or how, how were you no. facilitating that? Well, there, there's kind of different, uh, there's like a team now, a Max Sparky team. I've, so I've got Leilani, who's my kind of my grammar Nazi editor who really kind of makes sure I don't embarrass myself. Like and lightning. this time, yeah, actually, I caught that. <laughs> I caught that uh, before. It didn't go out that way, but actually, at one point, had an E between an extra E and lightning cable. But the um, so I've got Lonnie helping me out this time. JF Breset, who's been on our show at least, I don't know if he was a full guest, but I know he did like a Saturday show with us. At some yeah, point. and and he did the interim uh, MPU theme music too. Yeah, and he he kind of acted as a technical editor. He's a very smart guy, and he. He caught things in there that I needed to change. Like one of the things is this book took a long time to write. And while I was writing it, Apple changed some of the interface points that I didn't catch that they had changed it or even they changed the names of, of a few things. And JF caught that for me. But that stuff is all in a pages file. They don't see those guys never. Lonnie and JF never really saw the book. Um, and then once I had the words, I at the same time, I had Graham and Steph um, going out to. Um, help me develop the the iBooks author template. And we had to make, we made some decisions here that are different. Like this book is portrait only. It's the first time I've done a book that doesn't switch between landscape and portrait. I actually really liked and, that. You know, I'm reading this on the iPad mini and I thought that just felt very right. Well, the, the problem is th there's advantages to doing it where it rotates. And the biggest advantage is you have in theory, the best of both worlds. It, when you turn it in landscape mode, you have absolute control over the layout. Um, and then when you turn it in portrait mode, the reader can bump up the font size. And and that that's nice if somebody needs to get a really high point size. But the problem is you really don't have absolute control in landscape. And when you try and make the book so you can flip it, it's essentially doing the layout twice. And and you have to make compromises all over the place in order to make it flip. Even though you're doing it twice, it's not quite as good. So it was kind of one of those things like, you know, you hear about complaints about Windows right now. Because Windows, they're trying to make it a tablet and a desktop. This is kind of a version of that problem. So, and, and Graham and Steph were the ones that suggested I keep it in one format. And as soon as I started putting the book together in the one, the one format, I realized, you know, this book looks a lot better. So the trade-off was you can't rotate it, but the book looks a lot better. And it seemed to me like a natural fit. One of the things I did insist on those, we made the point size a bit larger so people shouldn't have a problem reading it. And frankly, if you buy the book and you can't read it because of the point size, let me know and I'll figure something out for you. you know? I wonder if you could modify that or if people who have trouble reading it because of the point size could modify that in one of the accessibility panes. No, you can't. Oh, I mean, this okay. book is locked down. I Got mean, it. it's, it's uh is at a certain point. But I think it's big enough that it shouldn't be a problem. Um, and so it's, it's portrait only, but that gave me, it made the book look better. 
Um, the other thing I really wanted with this book is I wanted it to feel even more like a field guide. You know, I love the idea of a field guide. You know, I grew up watching Indiana Jones. I, I, I like that he has the grail diary and, and I, I want these books to kind of feel that way. And the, the sections on, on keynote, for instance, doesn't have a whole lot of field guidey feel to it because there's so many screenshots and so many screencasts and embedded keynote slides. But, but a lot of the rest of the book really does have a nice field guide kind of feel to it. And, um, and we were very conscious of that throughout the design process. Now, and I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question. Then to get back to, you know, at the very end, I, I shoot a PDF to both JF and Leilani to read it one last time to make sure I didn't embarrass myself again, but they, they really have no involvement with the layout design and working with Graham and Steph, maybe we'll have them in for a show one time. I don't know if that's going to be interesting enough for the audience, but, um, they, they kind of helped me build the template and then they gave it to me and I built the book out and then I sent it back to them and they went through and made some tweaks on it and kind of, they just made it better anything they touched, you know, frankly. And then they sent it back to me. And then there's the whole screencast production part of this, which is not trivial. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about a little bit in the pre-show is that this is the first time you've really built a book, an iBooks author, where you've had an iBooks for iOS. And I know one of the struggles that you Maybe had iBooks for Mac. I'm Mac. sorry, iBooks for Mac, yes. And I know yeah. one of the struggles that you had with the very the feedback that you got from the very first beta test of your very first iBook is that some people struggled with how do I read this iBook? And now not only do you have iBooks for iPad, which people are I think are used to at this point, but now you've got iBooks for Mac. Did do you how do you think having iBooks for Mac will change things? Did it change anything in the way that you designed it or laid it out, or do you think it will significantly impact your sales in any way? Um, it certainly gives me um another channel because there's a lot of people who don't have an iPad but still want to read these books. You know, which is great. Um, I really feel I'm very proud of this work. I'm very proud of every book I write, to be honest with you, or I wouldn't release it. But I feel like I have, I've, I feel like I'm a pioneer in this kind of iBooks and electronic book stuff. And I, I absolutely love it. I mean, someday I'm going to be worm food and people may look back and say, hey, he was kind of a weirdo, but he did write a couple pretty good books. And, and I really take it seriously about how is this evolving? I heard Alex Lindsay once talk about, you know, the stage when they went from the stage to motion pictures and how, um, the big problem was that the the people that made um, stage plays went to make movies, but they did they, their their whole mindset was okay. Put the camera where the audience sits and do the play in front of the camera, and then we got ourselves a movie. It took them years to figure out. Hey, wait a second, we can move the camera around this thing, and I'm very conscious of that. And I want my books not to be the camera sitting in the audience for eBooks. I want them to be pushing the envelope of this stuff. And to a certain extent, I have evolved kind of a a language of, of the interface. This book kind of has an interface. And I actually went to some length in the opening chapter explaining how things work. Like, I figured out a whole bunch of tricks in iBooks that I didn't know before. Like, now, even though you can't make buttons in iBooks, I figured out a way to make buttons. And so, now you don't have to tap on words. You know, in all my prior books, there are these little words, and you had to tap on them for a link. And if you didn't hit exactly in the right place, it was a problem. Now, I got a big, fat button you can just tap on, and you're in good shape. But I said, well, if I'm going to put buttons, it needs kind of a design language. So, 
there's buttons of different colors. If you tap on a navy blue button, it's going to take you out of the book and take you to, to Safari. If you So you know that. If you hit a light blue button, it's going to take you to the iTunes store. And so there's there's kind of a language to the book, which is kind of nice. And I also figured out how to make really uh, more advanced HTML widgets. So in prior books where if I wanted to show you a funny YouTube clip, you had to push a button and it kicked you out of the book and it went to YouTube and you had to watch YouTube. And if you wanted to go back to reading the book, you had to go back and find the iBooks app and go back and find your page. It was really kind of tedious. So now I figured a way to embed that stuff in the book so you can watch it right there and you push the close button and continue where you left off. So there was a lot of evolutionary technology in this book as well, which I'm proud of. Well, David, it's an absolutely amazing accomplishment. It's I hate to say one of your best book bags yet or your be- your best book yet because I know these are like your children and they're they're all a little different in their their own unique way but I think it's a topic that is very much needed I I think you've covered it wonderfully and um I I guess I'll say I think it's your prettiest book yet for sure yeah, and the, the, thanks Graham and Steph for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, I thank you, Katie. It was a lot of fun making it. I'm very proud of it, and I'm happy to see it getting out into the world. I can't wait to hear from people. You know, the the best part about making these books, honestly, is when I hear from someone who read it and found some way to help it make a difference in their life. I I got an email from a listener slash reader who read the paperless book and took their animal shelter paperless and told me how, you know, they were going to put a dog down and they didn't have the necessary paperwork to save him. But because he had read paperless, he had everything digitized and he was able to grab it on his iPad and at the last minute save this dog. And it sounds silly, but I got, it was really touching for me to think that, you know, the words I wrote somewhere affects people like that and and save Rover. Yeah. Speaking of which, have you Um, seen on Twitter how I made my little comments about dogs and now everybody's tweeting us pictures of their adorable dogs using their Macs? Yeah, with the word Max Barky in it. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, so the book came out great. And uh, if you're listening and you have any interest in this stuff, uh, you know, I, I priced them at $10. I want it to be accessible to anybody. Uh, please check it out. And, and I really do appreciate your support. And and pre-orders are going on um, up till the 21st. And then you, the, they go live on the 21st and they'll, they'll be downloaded. And they're... Probably the best experience, I would say, is if you have access to iBooks on your Mac or on your iPad, but you are also selling a PDF, correct? Yeah, and the PDF is a big, it's a, it's like a gigabyte size file because it comes with all the video and all the screenshots. So you're getting the same materials. It's not kind of tied together for you like it would be on iBooks. And, you know, I it's funny. I make more money if you buy the PDF because, you know, Apple doesn't get its cut, right? I am telling you, you should probably, if you, if you, if you have a Mac and you have an iBook store that supports it, cause not every country does, or if you have an iPad, buy, buy the iBooks version. It's, it's really the, the intended, um, format. The optimal viewing experience. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's fun. It's fun to flip through these things and, you know, it's all incorporated. Well, David, I'm just in awe of you and, and how you do these. Congratulations on on a, just an amazing book. And uh, everybody, go out and buy presentations. And then buy paperless yeah, and email and 60 tips and markdown and all those <laughs> as well. Well, it's it's a lot of fun making them. And like I said, you know, it's uh, it's some of the stuff I'm the most proud of, of the things I've done in my life. 
All right. Well, that will probably wrap us up. We've we've hit our magic mark. And so you can find links on how to buy David's book, as well as links to everything else that we've talked about in this episode at our website at MacPowerUsers.com or at 5x5.tv slash MPU. Uh, you can send us feedback um, to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. And you can find us on Twitter. We're at MacPowerUsers. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I am at Max Berkey. All right. Go buy the book. We'll see you next time.